Good evening, everyone. It's my uh, privilege and pleasure tonight to welcome you to the Rothko Chapel. I see a lot of familiar faces, but I'm going to tell you anyway, a sacred space that is where art, spirituality, human rights, and the work for justice converge for both individual and societal transformation. As the chapel is a sacred place where we come together in the presence of the divine and the presence of each other, I just have one instruction that I'd ask you to follow, which is please silence your cell phones and don't take pictures. And the reason for that is that way we can really be mindful together and also be mindful of our speaker and really participate fully. So I ask you, the, the, that's the only really house rule here. So we really appreciate it. You know, in preparing for tonight's program, I've been thinking a lot about the connection between mindfulness and the slow movements that are garnering so much attention these days, such as slow food and slow art. Movements that call our attention to a way of living that helps us break away from the cacophony and chaos of the world around us. And thankfully, there are those in the literary world who are committed to creating a meaningful and lasting work of art that's developed on its own timeline and not driven solely by the frenetic pace of the marketplace. Tonight, we're honored to have such a mindful and serious writer-artist among us, William Middleton whose definitive biography, Double Vision, The Unerring Eye of Art World Avatars, Dominique and John D. Manil, was not, thankfully, written in a day. But then again, upon further thought, how could it be written in a day? For I believe trying to fully understand and articulate the impact and li living legacy of Dominique and John D. Manil would take at least a lifetime of days. We are really indeed honored, William, that you so respectfully and sensitively undertook this amazing, amazing literary project. Uh, and you are here tonight to unveil it at the Rothko Chapel, a place, as all of you know so well, meant so much to the Demon Ills and continues to impact visitors from all corners of the world who have come here for spiritual renewal and sustenance. I think Dominique and John, Mark Rothko, and all the people who contributed to the Rothko Chapel's development would be very pleased indeed that we are hosting this conversation with you this evening. Before William comes to the podium, I want to extend our collective thanks to the Manila Collection, uh, to the cultural services of the French Embassy here in the United States for the collaborative efforts and contributions in making this evening possible. Could we give them all a round of a really nice round of applause? Thank you so much. And following the program this evening, everyone is invited to a champagne reception at the Manil Collection Byzantine Fresco Chapel, where the Manil Bookstore will also be selling William Middleton's book. Now with that, my job is done at least for this part of the program, and I'd like to invite my friend, colleague, and neighbor, Rebecca Rabinow, who will introduce our speaker for this evening. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us. I think you can see um, we 
we are the Menil neighborhood, and we just we love our neighbors, and, and I am always smiling when I see David. It's a pleasure to be here in this amazing space to welcome this new book. When I began working at the Menil Collection two years ago, one of the first things that people said to me is, do you know William? Have you spoken to William? Has he talked to you yet? And so that summer, I had the good fortune of being able to have lunch with William and hear him speak about this book, which first I was told he'd worked on for a decade, but I heard last night it was closer to 15 years. Um, and it's extraordinary. I hope that you all enjoy reading it as much as I do. So I was asked by David to introduce him, and I thought, well, what can I say to all of you, many of whom of you who know him so, so very well? You may or may not know that he is from Wichita, Kansas. You all know that he was a journalist, is a journalist and author, was the fashion features director for Harper's Bazaar, before becoming the Paris bureau chief for Fairchild Publications, overseeing W Magazine and Women's Wear Daily. Uh, in an interview he gave, he credited Frederica Hunter, who I think I saw walking in here, with telling him that there was a book publisher in New York who was interested in the Dominion's biography. I wonder if he knew what a daunting, fascinating, interesting task that would be when he first began. But I will tell you that when I picked up this book, I couldn't put it down. He captures the epic sweep as history unrolls over centuries and as families develop and flourish and eventually meet with the, uh, the meeting of John and Dominique de Menil. It's 657 pages. I remember having lunch with William in New York when he told me he was cutting it down from 1,000. <laughs> Um, it's, it's a great read, and I think it really speaks to what you all know, is that the Dumanils had a huge, and continue to have a huge impact, not only on the lives of Houston, but uh, on the greater world. Um, it's fascinating to think that these two people found each other in France and were able to have such a transformative effect on all of our lives. When I moved to Houston, I always felt like everyone was one step removed from the Dominils. If they didn't actually know Mrs. Dominil or her husband, they knew someone who did and were thus influenced. The book begins with a quote from John Dominil. He says, art doesn't call for marble floors nor pedestals. It is part of our life, our emotions, our delights. It can be deeply moving, but never stuffy. And I thought that was such a wonderful way to begin the book, and I thought that would be a good way to introduce William Middleton. So please, thank you for welcoming him. <laughs> thank you so much, Rebecca and uh, David, for those beautiful introductions. I really appreciate that. Um, not at all intimidating to be standing up here in this space. Um, <clears throat> I have to tell you that a friend of mine who's an author told me that for this kind of talk I should pick four or five areas of their lives and concentrate on that, maybe spend 10 minutes on each area or whatever, and I haven't done that. So um, <laughs> we're going to see what we have here. Um, Dominique and Jean de Menil were extraordinary people. I think we all uh, know this, and um, it's true that this project took a long time, and I had no idea, to answer your question, how long it would take when I began. 
Um, <clears throat> but one of the things that kept me going, uh, because this was a difficult project uh, to make happen, is I think Dominique and Jean de Menil are the kind of people that we need to be reading about today. Um, because they uh, were very fortunate. Uh, they had great fortune, but they felt that uh, their fortune brought with it a responsibility to give back and to make the world a better, a more intelligent, and a more beautiful place. And um, it has been a privilege uh, to sit down and think about their lives. Um, so I want to begin by giving you a sense of, first of all, what I knew. You know, what I knew when I started this was that there was this institution down here that had some connection with France. I lived in France for 10 years, so I'm very sensitive to kind of French culture, the French language, French history. So I knew there was something down here in Texas, and it was kind of French. And so I came down here, and I, and I saw the museum, and I saw the Rothko Chapel, and I saw what they had created. And like so many, I was struck by it. But I remember it was particularly at the house, and this was the fall of 2000 and the house was exactly as it was when they had lived there. And I remember being in that house uh, with that architecture, that you know, sensual interior design, that kind of strict architecture and that remarkable dense collection of art. And I remember looking outside and thinking, how did this happen? You know, how did this happen that this couple came here from Paris in the 1940s and did all of this? And why here? You know, and what is this place? <laughs> this place called Houston, you know, I, uh, I didn't know. And so, as, uh, as was said, I heard from Frederica Hunter that there was interest in, in, in writing a uh, biography, and I sat down and I did a proposal, and I've had a contract ever since. And one of the first things I learned from speaking with uh, the children, the five children of Dominique and Jean de Menil, it began as a biography of Dominique, and I was told very early that uh, John de Menil was essential to everything that they did, and to not forget, not to forget the importance of John de Menil. And um, so it became a, a, a joint biography, a double biography, which means two family histories. Um, so blame the children if it took a, a little longer than expected. Uh, no, but they're absolutely right. It, it, um, the more I learned about it, the more I understood that John de Menil was essential to everything they that they did. And because she lived uh, for so much longer, almost 25 years, many people forget uh, his influence. And um, it has been a tremendous uh, pleasure to learn about him. And many people feel that he's the great revelation uh, of the book. Not to take anything away from her, but uh, he was uh, an incredible figure. So I want to tell you first a little about uh, their families, because their families are very important to what uh, they are all about. So the Schlumberger family, begins essentially in Alsace. Uh, it was prominent on French oil 11 generations before the birth of Dominique. The book goes back 16 generations, but really 11 is when it becomes prominent. Um, and Dominique's great-great-grandfather was someone named Nicolas Schlumberger, who is credited with bringing the, the uh, Industrial Revolution to France. He started a company in 1808 called Nicolas Schlumberger and Company that still exists that is uh, considered one of the leading manufacturers of textile machinery in the world. It's headquartered in Gebvilla, a little town not far from uh, Mulhouse. And um, that was the source of the family's first great fortune. Um, in uh, 1870, Alsace is lost to Germany, so the province becomes part of Germany. Uh, her uh, grandparents, her grandfather is married to um, a granddaughter, of, a very French granddaughter, 
of uh, Guizot, a leading historian and statesman in 19th century France, and they want to move back to France. But the family fortune is in Alsace. So one by one, the children go back to France, and um, Dominique uh, is, is born in 1908. But the Schlumberger family was, an, was a uh, Protestant industrialist dynasty. So to be Protestant in France is something that is incredibly uh, significant. And um, oh, many people have said this is, uh, that they were Protestant, which is like being a New England Yankee. But it's actually much more significant than that. Um, it is uh, the Protestants were um, a very small minority in France. Really, only about two percent of the people were Protestant. And uh, to have been a Protestant dynasty was something that had very profound implications. Um, I want to read just a little, um, and this is about uh, the what happened when Dominique met uh, Jean de Menil because he became he was from a very prominent Catholic family, so um, it uh, <clears throat> was quite a uh, uh, significant obstacle for them to overcome. So I say the difference of religion between their families was not easily brushed aside, for there is no country in Europe that has persecuted its Protestants with quite as much fervor as France. Since Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517, France has known violent, enduring struggles between Protestants and Catholics. Huguenots, the name given to French Protestants, originally began as a slur in the 16th century. It wasn't until the eve of the French Revolution that anti-Protestant laws were relaxed. Louis XVI, in 1787, signed the Edict of Tolerance, although it fell to Napoleon in 1802, to conclude a pact with the Vatican and to officially recognize the Protestant Church. But throughout the 19th century, the Protestant minority exercised a disproportionate influence in banking and industry. Financial success made them an even greater target of resentment. Well into the 20th century, Protestantism was the subject of harsh articles, essays, and denunciations. As one study contended, all of these attacks, often very close to those targeting Jews and Freemasons, suggested the, the existence of a Protestant party. And uh, the characteristic of being Protestant was something that was very enduring. Uh, André Siegfried, who was John de Menil's uh, great protege, uh, a professor of his, suggested that there were areas of France where memories of the past were so vivid that it was as though they were still fighting the battles of the 16th and 17th centuries. According to Andre Siegfried, if you are Protestant, if you are born Protestant, you stay Protestant, just as those who are born white stay white. Um, and in the midst of such polarity, the young couple didn't flinch. Dominique even felt that Jean liked the idea of her, of, of, uh, liked the idea of her being Protestant. That if anything, she should pretend to be more Protestant. <laughs> they made an early decision, which would be severely tested, not to allow religious background to interfere with the relationship. As Dominique wrote to Jean weeks after they met. It is absurd to think that the difference of religion between us could be a source of dissension. That would be an ecclesiastic, sectarian way of seeing things, an abstraction of the humane and divine points of view. We are brought together by the most human emotion, love, and by our common belief in God. As long as we are united in this feeling and in this belief, neither churches, nor rules, nor pastors, nor priests will be able to keep us apart. So, it also is a beautiful love story, the story of Dominique and, and Jean de Menil. Um, I want to tell you just a little about Jean de Menil. Um, as I said, he's a, a fascinating uh, figure. 
he, um, the Domenio family was ennobled. John Domenio's great-great-grandfather was a colonel under Napoleon and spent about 25 years on Napoleonic battlefields across Europe. And he was ennobled, given the title of uh, the Baron de Menil. And um, they had a strong history of, kind of militaristic uh, intensity and um, Catholicism. But by the time Jean was growing up, um, he, I, I explained, as the 1920s gave way to the 30s, Jean began to reflect more of his family characteristics. Both his mother and his father gave an appreciation of faith although Jean's was softer, less dogmatic. Much like his father, his two older brothers, and his great father, and his great-grandfather, he had a militaristic passion and a sense of duty. His rise at the bank, because he was a very successful young banker when he met Dominique de Menil, showed him to be an effective businessman and leader, similar to his grandfather, Marcelin Rougier. There were cultural stimuli as well. He had a love for music and literature that had been encouraged by his mother. But Jean took these characteristics, many rather conventional, and turned them into something that was much more robust. Quote, although he still cared very much about his family, he no longer felt in harmony with us, said his sister Merez. He was comfortable in a more open cultural environment. Jean began to transcend his heritage, defining his own track. He engaged in the cultural life of the city, both high and low, and he developed what his family had been lacking, a sensitivity to what was modern and meaningful. It had long been felt that Parisians had a difficult time moving beyond the borders of their own country. There was a saying, for example, that the French didn't travel well except in exile. <laughs> Jean's six-month trip around the world that he took when he was 21 years old helped him to break with that tradition. It opened his mind enormously, Dominique de Menil said of the experience. In his trip abroad and his military service in Morocco, he was able to see the world from a much broader perspective. He began to evolve into an internationalist and a humanist. Quote, if I try to sum up Jean's ideal, I keep coming back to words such as honesty and truthfulness and brotherhood, Dominique later pointed out in this very chapel. He himself started in life at the bottom of the ladder. He had vowed that if he would ever get into a position of authority, that he would not forget those who see things from below, those who are never given a voice. So after his trip around the world, Jean de Menil didn't return to his home in Paris empty-handed. He had acquired many objects on his expeditions. From Africa, he, he brought back ceremonial masks, as well as a large rug made of bark. In Tahiti, he, brought, he bought records of traditional music. From Polynesia, he brought back floral wrap skirts, lava lava, that he wore over his swimsuit at the beach. And he was eager to share his exotic finds with family and friends. So by 1930, this newly minted baron, because he became the baron de Menil, had managed to turn himself into quite a distinctive figure. He had developed an engaged view of the world, and he was fulfilling his quest for success. Deeply religious, he had also begun to have an intense connection with the inventive arts that were around him in post-war Paris. These were the earliest scenes of a connoisseur, of a patron, that would be brought to life in the most spectacular way on the other side of the world. So, Dominique, after their marriage, um, converted to Catholicism. And it was after, it was two years after they married. And um, that was a decision, as you might imagine, that was a difficult one for her to make and not particularly well received in her very Protestant family. Um, but it was, it was something that was incredibly uh, important uh, for her. 
And um, although they had begun buying a few works of art in Paris after their, after their early marriage in the, in the 30s, uh, it was really in the field of belief and religion that they were, that they were, uh, uh, was, their, was their early engagement was in the field of religion and, and spirituality. And, and um, five years after they were married, in January 1936, Dominique and Jean went to a series of lectures that helped invigorate their lives. The talks were given by leading Dominican priest, Yves-Marie Joseph Congar, who had become one of the great Roman Catholic uh, theologians of the century. The occasion was the celebration of an, uh, dedicated to the unity of the Christian world from January 18th to January 25th. The lectures were held in Sacré-Cœur, that white Roman Byzantine fantasy perched on the top of Montmartre. The subject was ecumenism, that the Catholic Church should open itself to other faiths, other spiritual paths. Uh, as Congar suggested, quote, ecumenism begins with the admission that others, and not just individuals, but entire ecclesiastic bodies, are right, though they differ from us. Even if they are not Christian, they also possess truth, holiness, and the gifts of God. Ecumenism exists by understanding what is Christian in someone else, not in spite of their particular confession, but because of it and through it. So Dominique was so taken by Congar's ideas that she wrote an essay about the experience, about his talks. It was published in a leading bi-monthly journal of Catholic thought. It was over six pages. And she explored Congar's thoughts on the division between Catholics and Protestants, summarized his ideals on how unity should be uh, facilitated and informed readers that he would be combining the lectures into a book. Congar had a sweeping view of how ecumenism should be incorporated in, into everyday life. As he explained in his final session, quote, an, ecu an ecumenical conference doesn't conclude with a plan of action. What it requires from the point of view of the church is living more intensely. It's not just a question of doing certain things. It's really a question of living in a certain way. So being guided by ethical and spiritual principles, Congar revealed, revealed to the Dimineals meant that a life more than any single achievement would become a true masterwork. And when the chapel, the Rothko Chapel was dedicated, Dominique singled out Father Congar as being an influence. Um, wartime, World War II, was um, obviously an important moment in the lives of the Dominiles. And um, they were in, uh, Jean had joined the family company two years before, and they were in Bucharest. Um, Jean was in Bucharest working for Schlumberger, and uh, because Bucharest, Romania is the only oil exporting or oil producing country country in Europe. And so they were in Romania, and Dominique went to uh, join him uh, because she knew the company actually better than he did. Um, and um, Jean was very active in what was called the Deuxième Bureau, which was essentially the French secret services. He sabotaged shipments of oil that were going to Germany. He performed um, remarkable acts of heroism. And um, he, oh, I just want to find this here. Um, 
And he also demonstrated his character. One day they were in Bucharest in, in uh, early 1940. They were in their apartment in Bucharest and there was an organ grinder who appeared on the street. He was playing some music and so Dominique and Jean went to the window and they threw down some money. They spoke with him a little, presumably in French because Romanian, uh, Romanian France had a long shared history. And uh, so they spoke presumably in French. And once the uh, organ grinder realized that, that they were French, he struck up La Marseillaise, the French national anthem. And so Jean de Menil threw the money down and he said, I'll give you three times more than that if you go and play the same song under the windows of the German embassy. <laughs> so this was a very strong figure. You know, this was someone who had tremendous character. Um, once they made it to America in 1941 uh, is really when their artistic journey began. And essential to that was Father Couturier, who many of you have heard about, um, who Dominique had met in Paris in the 1930s. She had contributed to his magazine on sacred art. She had written stories. But they were, uh, they were close, but they had sort of lost contact at the beginning of the war. Father Couturier was in, was in America, and Jean was there, and he found him again. And so Dominique and Jean, once Dominique made it to New York, started going to museums with him. And um, they started seeing works of art together, and, and he educated them. Uh, they did not understand the significance of modern art, and there was not a lot of modern art that could be seen in museums in, in Paris at that point. The Museum of Modern Art was much more uh, adventurous than anything that they could see there. Also important at that time, and Father Couturier talks about it quite a bit, and it's interesting because it's not something I, that I would have thought of, but it was particularly meaningful for them because France has fallen to the Nazis at this point. And so for them to see European art and to be reminded of their culture and the importance of their culture at a time when they weren't sure that it would survive was meaningful. Um, and Father Couturier helped them understand two things. He helped them understand the importance of, of, of modern art, and he told them that they had to take it seriously, even there were some works that they didn't quite understand. In front of a Mondrian at the uh, Museum of Modern Art, Dominique said, oh, this is going too far. You know, that just, just a few lines, I can't take that. He said, well, you might not like it, but, but it is serious and you have to take it seriously. And that was, that was important for their development. Um, but also what Father Couturier did that was essential is he helped them to understand that their growing fortune brought with it a responsibility to buy art and to put it to the use of the public. And for Dominique, who always had this sort of Protestant reticence to, to spend money and to buy uh, art, it provided a sort of moral obligation for collecting. Um, so that was uh, very important to, to um, their journey. Then um, another important factor in their development as collectors was Alexander Yolas. And we hear so much about Father Couturier, and Father Couturier was certainly important, but Alexander Yolas was a remarkable figure who was a dealer who was also very important, and the two figures could not be more different. They didn't particularly like one another, um, but Yolas, uh, who was very sort of extravagant and passionate about art and had a remarkable flair for installation, um, was someone who had just a, a, a key uh, impact on uh, their collection. And um, 
one time, they met, they met Yolis in, right after the war in New York, when he was the director of the Hugo Gallery. And shortly after, uh, Dominique and Jean bought a work by Jean Hugo from him. And they had a really interesting, collect, uh, a really interesting conversation that kind of says a lot about uh, how they saw things at that point. So they decided to buy this landscape, and Yolis told the Dominiels some of his background. Quote, I used to be a dancer before, but I started to be too old, and now the only thing that interests me is art. Yolis asked Jean what he did for a living. Me, I find oil, Jean said with a laugh. Yolis responded, oil? What do you do with oil? Jean replied, we do something with oil that is fundamental, indispensable. Yolis asked, more indispensable than art? The response from Dominique, I don't think so. Not more indispensable than art. Jean said with a smile, so there's your answer. You're, you're more indispensable. <laughs> but it says something about um, the importance, even very early, that they placed on, on, uh, on art and on artists. So there's so much I could say about the relationship with artists um, and the, the importance uh, that they placed on the creative act and, and on the artist. Um, but their social and political engagement is obviously really important to this institution. And I wanna talk just a little about that. Um, and I wanna give one example, um, because it can have been, uh, you know, it cannot have been easy to have been so sort of progressive as the Dominios were uh, in Houston at that time. And there are moments when Jean de Menil navigates uh, that situation in a way that I think is very revealing. So in January 1964, Ted Law, who was married to Caroline Weiss Law, um, who was the daughter of one of the founders of Humble Oil, invited Dominique and Jean to a dinner at their house in River Oaks. It was to be a gathering, Law explained, of true conservatives. Jean's reply was droll, but also made a serious point. Jean wrote, we hate to disappoint you because we consider ourselves as your friends and we like both of you. I'm afraid we are not true conservatives, Dominique and I. Actually, we are Kennedy Democrats. Isn't it awful? <laughs> he said, although we do not see eye to eye with you, we wish you good luck for your dinner. We also hope that there are projects on which we can see eye to eye and work shoulder to shoulder. Conservative or liberal politics are one thing and an important one, but what we do with our power, our overwhelming power, to stand in history as a great civilization, that is important too, very important indeed. And this is a field in which conservatives and liberals can agree and pull together. So, it's a very brief letter, but I think it says so much about the character of Jean de Menil. He was unwilling to pretend that he was something that he was not. He made an effort to diffuse any tension with humor. And perhaps most important, he sketched out the best possible outcome of a situation, presenting it as though it should be obvious that everyone would want to move in that direction. So, um, there is so much in the book about their quest for social justice. And I think a lot of it is going to surprise some people. Um, it will be interesting to find, 
for people to discover how early that happened, um, beginning in the 1950s. Um, and also to think of how far-reaching it was and how some events that might not have been considered sort of social acts were. Uh, there's one exhibition at the Museum of Fine Arts in 1959 that's a very famous exhibition called Totems Not Taboo, uh, which was curated by Jerry McKaggy, someone who was very important for the Dominials. Um, that exhibition was pronounced by the uh, director of the Museum of Modern Art who came down to see it as one of the three most exceptional exhibitions of art that he'd ever seen in his life. Um, it was over 250 uh, non-Western uh, works, primarily African, uh, in that beautiful Cullinan Hall, uh, the Mies van der Rohe Design Building and the Museum of Fine Arts. And um, it is remarkable to me that in 1959 Houston, um, an exhibition of primarily African art was held in such a, an important city in, in the South, you know. And Jean de Menil made it very clear in the correspondence when he, when he uh, is planning the exhibition uh, that there was a social point to it. He worked with the faculty at TSU to make sure that they were aware of the exhibition. They brought students uh, to the show and uh, the curator of the primitive, um, the Museum of Primitive Art in New York uh, commented on um, the, uh, uh, how important the social part of the exhibition was for, for Jean. Um, so it's, it's fascinating to me that this, that this exhibition is important, not just artistically, um, but that they are making a statement, you know, and there wasn't a show like this in New York, you know, and the Dominios brought it to Houston in 1959. It's um, extraordinary, I think. Um, so their connection and their engagement with Houston is something that's a very uh, important part of the book. And I want to tell you one thing that I think is the, the great lesson of, how, of what they did in this city. So they began collecting in earnest in 1945. In earnest, they, collected the, they bought their first major piece in America in 1945. Uh, then 46, 47, they're buying a few other pieces, but they're, you can't say that they're significant collectors. Um, but in 1948, the Contemporary Arts Association begins, and it's an all-volunteer group. They have a little uh, building downtown that's done by Carl Kamrath, and um, that has been described as a potting shed. Sorry, Bill, I hope that doesn't uh, offend the Contemporary Arts Museum, but it was... Um, uh, it was a, a humble, a modest little A-frame building that was downtown, and they were doing exhibitions that were, uh, you know, to be honest, of moderate interest, and the Dominios got involved and they became a little more interesting, contemporary art in Houston collections. But then in 1950, Jean de Menil became the chairman, and they said, okay, we'll do an exhibition, but we want to do it our way. And so they started in the summer of 1950, uh, and they decided to do an exhibition of the work of Vincent van Gogh. So there had never been a, an exhibition of Vincent van Gogh in Houston. Obviously, there had never been one in Texas. There had never been one in the South, only one in Chicago uh, and one in New York. Um, and the Dominios spoke with the Metropolitan, and they secured uh, sunflowers. They secured two paintings from the Museum of Modern Art. They spoke with museums and collectors around the world. They sent what they said were a 1,000 letters and eventually they were able to bring down to Houston 21 perfect little paintings, watercolors, and sketches by Vincent van Gogh. 
And in the three weeks that the exhibition was open, there were 14,000 people who went to that show. It was far and away the most important cultural manifestation ever seen in the state of Texas. You know, it's no exaggeration to say that. And what's fascinating about that to me is that the Dominials decided that if they were going to do something here, it was going to be good not just for Houston or good for the state or even something that was good for the region, but that if they were going to do something, it was going to be as good as anything in New York or London or Paris, that everything they did needed to be measured by international standards. And it was like that from that first exhibition until the day Dominique de Menil died. And I believe not only all of the institutions that the Dominials were involved with in Houston, the Contemporary Arts Museum, the Museum of Fine Arts, the University of St. Thomas, Rice University, the Menil Collection, and the Rothko Chapel, not only all the, the institutions that the Dominials were directly involved with, but all of the institutions in Houston benefited from that. Because once you have one entity who's insisting on that kind of excellence, it kind of raises the bar for the entire city. So um, they had such an incredible impact on this city. And, um, it's fascinating for me to study the date books, as I have. Um, I was fortunate to be able to look at three decades of date books, from 1960 until 1997. And I see how much time they spend in New York, how much time they spend in Paris. I see their lives in New York and their lives in Paris, and the artists they're meeting with, the museum directors, the, the scholars, the art historians. And sometimes I look at it as like, gosh, that looks awfully exciting, you know, <laughs> what they're doing there. And yet they always come back here. They always come back here to do their events. They do their exhibitions back here. They build their institutions here because they feel they're needed here. You know, they feel they're needed. And they also felt a sense of obligation to the city because of the connection with Schlumberger. They felt that their fortune came from here and they had the responsibility to give back. Um, and it's such a powerful lesson, I think. Um, I want to talk just a little about the Rothko Chapel, um, because we're here. And um, many of you know the story of the building of the chapel, and you know even the backstory that Dominique, the first time she went to his studio in the 1950s, when she saw the Seagram's painting, she felt that she should walk softly and whisper. They felt a sort of spiritual connection to the work that not everyone felt, right? And um, they worked with the artist uh, for many years. And um, there are great stories about Dominique's reaction when she first saw the works and um, how he studied her for her reaction, you know, to make sure that she didn't, uh, or to see how, how she reacted. Um, but the paintings are not easy, you know. They're big and they're dark, and many feel that they're difficult. You know, it's, a, it, it's, it's not an easy environment. It's a powerful environment, but it's not always an easy one. And Dominique, from the first time the chapel opened, tackled that subject. And um, one of One of the things that she says is that first we might, we might be disappointed by the lack of glamour of the paintings surrounding, surrounding us. The more I live with them, the more impressed I am. Rothko wanted to bring his paintings to the greatest poignancy they were capable of. He wanted them to be intimate and timeless. 
Indeed, they are intimate and timeless. They embrace us without enclosing us. Their dark surfaces do not stop the gaze. A light surface is active, it stops the eye. But we can gaze right through these purplish browns, gaze into the infinite. And then as the, as the chapel was open for a couple of years, and they had done their first colloquium, they had started to, uh, she had started to think of, she and Jean actually had started to think of how the chapel should be used, that there should be colloquia here, um, that it should be, as she called it, a no man's land for God. Um, she began to observe the way it was used. And um, in 1974, she pointed to the way that visitors experienced the chapel as proof of its success. She spoke of the young people who went to meditate, an Islamic organization that went for weekly prayers, a yoga group that practiced every Monday, and weddings that sought a spiritual place without the pressure of an organized church. And she emphasized, of course, the mysterious power of the art. As Dominique said, the Rothko paintings are very quiet, very silent. It's almost as if, they were, as if they were not there. They really do not demand any attention, yet they have a presence. They are like the veil in the temple of Jerusalem. When the Romans conquered Jerusalem and forced their way into the temple, they were very surprised to find nothing in the Holy of Holies. The Rothko Chapel provides the same kind of dialectical tension, nothing and everything. Con concretely speaking, there is nothing there but stretched cotton duck soaked with a mixture of crimson and black. But aesthetically speaking, there is one of the most daring endeavors to express the infinite with the finite. This is a kind of tightrope walking, but isn't every great work of art tightrope walking? One of the great pleasures for me of this book is their writing. <laughs> you know, their writing, their speeches, um, everything they said is, to me, you know, marvelous, marvelously alive. You know, they had an, a, a remarkable way of, of expressing themselves. So, the change from, not the change, the evolution of this institution from a focus on civil rights to human rights was something that started very early. And it started when Jean Domenio was still alive, before he died in 1973. Civil rights, of course, was, was a very important part of this institution, beginning with the dedication to Martin Luther King Jr., a broken obelisk. Um, but they uh, thought very early that human rights was a natural progression. And Dominique um, began in the 1980s they had the first, their second colloquium was about uh, human rights in, in uh, 1974. Um, but Dominique began in the 1980s, as many of you know, to work with President Carter and to found the Carter Menino Human Rights Award. And um, it was a um, remarkable, I think, um, initiative that also had an impact on, on the post-presidency of President Carter. Um, he told me that he had thought of, obviously human rights was something that he was interested, interested in as president, but he had not focused on it as, uh, you know, as being a priority for his post-presidency. But Dominique encouraged him to do that. And the founding of the Carter Menil Human Rights Award was something that, that altered uh, the direction of his post-presidency. 
One of the last great um, events for the Carter Menil uh, was in May 1994 at, uh, when Dominique and, and President Carter went to Oslo. It actually began in 1993 when there was a major event that took place on the South Lawn, the historic signing of the Oslo Accords, and, uh, which formalized the two-state solution between Israel and Palestine. And there was a famous photograph that appeared on the front page of the New York Times with, with uh, uh, President Clinton standing between uh, uh, Rabin and, and Arafat. And, um, and, and he was looking as though he had orchestrated their handshake because he was standing between them. But President Carter attended the ceremony, which was uh, at the White House, and he had been involved in the background while the agreement was being negotiated, and he, know, he knew those had been instrumental in the process. Quote, the United States had not done anything at all to bring about the Oslo Agreement, Carter explained. They didn't even know about it when it was going on. I knew about it through Arafat and Shimon Perez, but it was kept secret from the United States. The real architects of the accord, Carter knew, were the foreign minister of Norway and a scientific non-governmental organization, the Norwegian Institute of Applied Social Science. Quote, since I was a former president, I sat in the front row, Carter said. My wife, Rosalind, sat in the second row. The foreign minister of Norway sat in the fourth, fourth row, and he was never mentioned. Clinton never acknowledged at all that the Norwegians had played any role in it. Carter was embarrassed and disappointed, so that night he mentioned it to Dominique. Why don't we have a special ceremony? Dominique suggested to Carter. Instead of honoring a human rights hero, why don't we honor the people of Norway? So in May 1994, Dominique, Jimmy Carter, Yasser Arafat, and Shimon Perez were in Oslo to present the Carter Menil Human Rights Prize to the Norwegian Institute of Applied Social Science. In addition to the $100,000 award, Dominique decided to give to the city of Oslo a monumental sculpture by Tony Smith, Marriage, uh, 1961. It's an abstract arch in steel that had been painted black and um, she invited the artist widow, Jane Smith, and Paula Cooper, the New York dealer for the Tony Smith estate, to Oslo for the events. Cooper had long known Dominique as a collector. Several years before, she had a show of the drawings of John Cage. The night before the exhibition opened, Dominique stopped by the gallery. The drawings had not yet been hung, so she got down on the floor to inspect them. Ask if that was something unusual, Paula Cooper said to me. Well, I've never seen a collector down on her hands and knees. So Dominique, Jane Smith, and Cooper all flew from New York to, to Oslo, and um, the event itself was um, Dominique with all of these heads of state. You know, the foreign minister of Norway, the heads of this institution, uh, Shimon Perez, and Yasser Arafat. And the way Paula Cooper was telling me about it, it, it sounded like Dominique was sort of on the same level as all of these world leaders. And I said, you know, is that the impression you had? And she said, oh, this was her show. <laughs> she, she said, this was a very strong woman. Um, so she had taken a trip earlier to choose just the right location for the, for the Tony Smith sculpture, which was right um, between Oslo, uh, right on the water, next to the city hall. And at the unveiling of the statue, Dominique addressed the audience, including the King of Norway and the Norwegian Minister of Foreign Affairs. And uh, she said, the, sup the superb antique Viking ships discovered in a burial site not so long ago remind us of the venturous spirit of the Norwegians. It's with the same courage that in the 12th century, Norwegians have gone out to help the world. 
And she suggested that the choosing of the sculpture had a grandeur that was appropriate, and that its abstract form was like a magnificent door that opened out to the sea. So they gave this sculpture that's still sited on this really prominent position in Oslo. And um, eight years after those ceremonies, Jimmy Carter would return to Oslo. On December, 20, or December 10th, 2002, as the final false justifications were being made for the American invasion of Iraq, Carter was awarded the 2002 Nobel Peace Prize. On that cold Scandinavian night, Carter remembered that earlier trip to Oslo. The city hall was adjacent to the site where Dominique had placed the Tony Smith sculpture. The dark steel arch of marriage still had its place on a hill overlooking the harbor with the historic stone walls behind it. As Carter said, quote, as soon as I left the Nobel ceremony, I walked over to the sculpture. It was a very cold night. There was snow on the ground. I walked up to it, picked up two or three stones from the base, and held them in my hand. I went there just to think about Mrs. de Menil and about how her influence had been a contributing factor in my receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. So rare is the individual, I think, who has that kind of impact on, in this case, a president. Um, but the impact that Dominios had on the city is extraordinary and ongoing. So I could talk a lot about this book. <laughs> I've spent a lot of time researching it, and it's something that I'm very enthusiastic about, but I would love to hear questions from all of you. Many of you knew them, some of you knew, some have been affected, some have been inspired, and I'd love to hear uh, questions from the audience. Oh, there are none. Yes. Houston, very good question. Um, Houston was the American headquarters of Schlumberger, so that's why they came here. Yes. I think a microphone is going to come around. So, there we go. <laughs> I guess you, in a way, sort of already answered it, but I was interested in, I mean, 15 years is a long time to work on this, but I was curious how it, um, how she and he, in writing this book, if they, um, changed you in any way or had a mm. impact on you as a as a human being right that's a very good question um, <clears throat> first I will say that spending a, a tremendous amount of time like that could sound like it might not be that interesting you know um, but one of the uh, for me um, something that I was struck by this story is the more time that I spent with it the more interesting it became and the more kind of complex they became as individuals. Um, a, an interesting part of this project is Dominique and Jean de Menil were very good at what we might call today compartmentalization. You know, and there were people who 
were involved and were very close with them who knew only what they were involved with. So people at the museum knew about the museum. People in Paris knew about Paris. People who worked on the image of the black knew about that. Civil rights, only civil rights. In fact, there's someone who I know who worked at the museum and who was who had heard about this purchase of the Byzantine frescoes and asked about them and Dominique sort of suggested, well, that's not any of your business, really. And so, so their worlds were very, um, they, they, no one knew the full extent of the story. So part of this work became almost like a detective, <laughs> you know, sitting down and trying to fan out over the whole expanse of their lives and uh, learn about everything and then piece it together into some sort of narrative. So um, that was fascinating. So it became more and more, I mean, the more I learned about them, the more impressed I became by them as individuals, the kind of richer the story became. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. Oh, we have one here first. Oh, well, I think it's for everyone. Oh. Um, what, can you talk a little bit about the challenges of the process of writing about a family when mm -hmm. the children are still present? Mm -hmm. um, and just what did you learn about them as a family and just that whole experience for you? Does that make sense? Sure, sure. Well, the first thing that I've, I learned, because one of the first things that my editor and I did was to make contact with the, the five children of Dominique and Jean de Menil. And um, from, the, from the beginning, I, uh, you know, if any of us were contacted by someone who said, I want to write a book about your parents, we would all say, who is this person and what do they want to do? You know, so I always felt that it was my responsibility to make the family feel comfortable with the project. And there was one family member who told me very early on that the way to make the family feel uh, comfortable is through knowledge of the subject. And so that's what I tried to do. I sat down and I learned as much as I could. And I tried to make it clear that this was going to be a serious work. It wasn't uh, a work of gossip. It wasn't um, something, uh, it, was, it was a serious work that, that um, would do justice, I hope, to, to, to them, to the subject. Um, and I, uh, I discovered that Dominique and Jean de Menil were, were incredible archivists. You know, they kept everything. Uh, and it's fascinating to me to see that, like for example, in, towards the end of World War II, Jean de Menil was in Venezuela. Dominique is back here in Houston. And he is sending her the correspondence that they've had over the last few years. And he said, I've organized it by correspondent, but I want you to put it in, in chronological order. And I'm shipping it back, and you'll get it organized and all of that. And so even in the midst of you know, life and a war in this case, they're understanding, I believe, the historical import of what they're doing. And they kept everything. You know? So once I was able to look at um, most of the information in the family archives, which involves 10,000 photographs and 3,000 letters, probably two to 3,000 letters, mostly handwritten, mostly in French. Um, I was able to really understand the, the, so much more of the story, you know, and to really get the full uh, sense of, of the story. But um, one of the things that was really interesting about that is I, um, 
I saw that there were letters, Dominique's letters from her father, which is normal. Dominique's letters from her mother, Dominique's letters from her sister. But then I realized also that there were also, there were Dominique's letters to her sister, Dominique's letters to her mother and to her father. So as people die, she would recover the other side of the correspondence. So you have like both sides of every correspondence like that, which is extraordinary. You know? um, and another great discovery that I made in all of the research that was done is that um, research is fun. You know, who doesn't like to learn? We all like to learn. Um, it's when you have to sit down and put it into a narrative and do something with it that it can be a little uh, excruciating or <laughs> challenging depending on the day, but it can be, um, everyone likes to learn. So research is fun, that's what I learned. Mike, did you have a question? I think there's a microphone. Thank you. Thank you, William. Um, so, Sean and Dominique moved here in 1941, I think you said, mm -hmm. right? And uh, Houston, a very different place than it is now. Um, did they have um, a difficult time integrating themselves into, you know, which I imagine at the time was a much more provincial sort of city, mm -hmm. you know, um, this Parisian, you know, couple moving to, you know, the South in Texas, and uh, do they have a hard time finding friends, or did they care, or do mm -hmm. you, can you speak a little bit about sort of their integration mm -hmm. into society here? Sure. Yeah. One piece of information that I got very early from the eldest son, George Domineal, that was sort of key to me to understanding, I think, their time here, is that uh, he said that he felt that his mother always remained somewhat European throughout her life. She had a French accent, slight French accent throughout her life, but that Jean Domineal loved being an American, he loved being a Texan, and he loved being a Texas oil man, you know? And, um, so that was a really interesting key to, to their experience here. And, you know, one of the things, to be honest, that was helpful is Schlumberger. You know, Schlumberger plays a major role in the, in the economic life of, of this city. And the fact that she was the daughter of the founder and that he was a leading executive at the company um, was, was certainly helpful for, for their uh, engagement or their involvement in the city. Um, but it's interesting too that, because some people ask me this, it's like, do you ever get a sense that, um, because Paris is a pretty exciting place and New York is a pretty exciting place and do you ever get a sense that, you know, maybe they weren't happy in Houston or they felt like it was a sort of sacrifice to be here? And what's fascinating is that there's not even one note that I've ever found that would suggest that. There's not one letter, there's not one moment uh, that would suggest that they are anything but thrilled to be doing what they're doing here in Houston. Um, actually, I say that, and then I think of one moment before they moved here, and Jean said to Dominique's sister that, you know, he was afraid that she wasn't going to like Houston and that she was going to be in for a rude awakening. But part of that was about the, the situation with the company. It, it wasn't necessarily about, about the city. Um, but uh, yeah, they they uh, they were completely focused on on making the city better. And um, there's a moment where in the 1950s they they give some funds to the Museum of Modern Art, 
and uh, Jean writes a letter explaining, you know, we're happy to do this and, and uh, we're happy to help the museum when we can, but it's somewhat limited because, you know, our focus is really on Houston because here we're almost alone. You know? They weren't completely alone, but they were almost alone. <laughs> yes. There's a microphone. Kind of picking up on that, uh, Houston is such a different place now, today. Mm -hmm and it's so much more progressive and multicultural. Mm -hmm. And there's a palatable appreciation for the arts. So can you speculate what their activism would have looked like to, if, it, if they were alive today? And would it necessarily have been in the art world? Mm. It's interesting, I haven't, I haven't really uh, thought of that. I, um you know, I, I, I can't answer that. I only think of through 1997. I don't, I don't think of anything afterwards. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, no, I, I, I really can't answer that. It's a very good question, but, but I'm going to have to sort of leave that one in the air. Yes. Maybe I can try to ask the question in a slightly different way. Okay. Um, I'm curious if you came across in your research any letters or documents that sort of fleshed out the Damon Neal's imagination of the legacy of the collection mm -hmm. into the future once you know they're not here to kind of uh, oversee the aesthetic and to kind of continue to cultivate relationships with contemporary artists and build the collection. Mm -hmm. I have not seen a lot of information on, on her feeling on, on what the museum should be after she leaves. No, I, didn't, I did not see a lot of that. I know that that was discussed at the end of her life, but it wasn't um, something that I have, I have not read very much about it. Um, I know that her choice of Louisa Serafin to, to be her successor was something that was very important to her. Um, but I have not seen very much of, of actual uh, plans that she had on, on how uh, it should be continued. Yes. Uh, one of their children, their daughter Adelaide, mm -hmm. started or maybe completed a, kind of an oral history project mm -hmm. uh, looking at the kind of near past of the ancestors of their of their forebears, did you get a sense of what the impetus for that was? Of the project called Souvenirs that, that, that Adelaide yes. oversaw. Well, it was it was about the the memory of her father. It was focusing on on the history of of her father and interviewing friends and family members uh, in the 1980s um, about about her father. So it was it was about memorializing her father. Am I right? Souvenirs. Okay. Fascinating uh, source for the book because um, many of the, Dominique of course was interviewed, but many of the people are no longer alive. Um, for example, that story about Yolas and who's more essential, that comes from souvenirs. So it was, it was a really important source uh, for this book. And at first I thought, well it looked like I believe there were 76 interviews, right? So I started working on it, and, and then I realized that there were 76 interview subjects, and some of them were interviewed once and twice and three and four times. So there's a lot of information in, in souvenirs. 
And additionally, many of them, or all, were, were filmed by Francois de Menil. So I have not seen the film footage, but um, that's very exciting too for a future project. Yes, get a microphone here. I wonder if you would share with us some of the civil rights work that um, the Demonils did. I, I have one or two recollections. I, I believe they uh, supported uh, the late Congressman Mickey Leland. Mm -hmm. um, but I would like to know what sure. you learned about their civil rights work. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, their civil rights work is uh, long-lasting and incredibly important. Um, Mickey Leland, uh, who became a congressman from Texas, is one of the most uh, visible uh, figures. But there are so many groups. Um, you may know the SHAPE Community Center, Deloyd Parker. Um, he, for me, is a great example of, of how they supported uh, people. At one point, Deloyd Parker was having a meeting at the house in River Oaks. And he said that he felt that eventually it would be important for him to see Africa for his development as, as, an, as an activist. And it was just said in conversation. It wasn't something that um, he really thought that much about. And then um, several weeks later, he received a check uh, that funded a months-long trip to Africa. And it was the first trip to the continent. And it was essential for his development as, uh, as an activist. And they, uh, the Dominios helped fund the SHAPE Community Center. They helped pay the rent for the SHAPE Community Center for decades afterwards. Um, but their support was always behind the scenes. And um, they met Mickey Leland through um, the dean at uh, TSU. They asked if there were any students who were particularly promising. And he told them about this young pharmacy student. And they met him and thought that he was very dynamic. And um, they worked to help him. You know, it was very clear that they didn't make Mickey Leland, that they uh, gave support to Mickey Leland and allowed him to become himself, you know. Um, and there are some beautiful letters in the book from Mickey Leland and some beautiful anecdotes about what Dominique and particularly Jean meant uh, to him. But there, there are so many examples. The TSU-5, which was um, uh, the falsely accused, um, who were falsely accused of starting a riot at TSU. John DeMille paid for their defense. He paid to have uh, buses of uh, supporters sent to the trial in Victoria. And it was all behind the scenes. No one ever knew what was happening. And um, I remember I asked the Lord Parker, I said, was this the sort of thing that, were there a lot of people who were doing this sort of thing? And he said, not rich white men from River Oaks. <laughs> so yeah, it was very, very important to their, uh, to their mission, to their mission. And there are so many, you know, we all, or many of us know of the, the image of the black in Western art, this amazing research project that, uh, that began in the early 60s. It began with James Johnson Sweeney at the Museum of Fine Arts. Um, the Dominials had this idea that uh, blacks had been depicted in ways that were much more noble 
than was ever understood, and they wanted to um, contact museums and collectors around the world to begin to document this, and um, it began with James Johnson Sweetie writing letters from the Museum of Fine Arts. It became too big of a project for the Museum of Fine Arts and frankly somewhat controversial. Um, so they took it on. They began an office in Paris, an office here in Houston, and for decades it um, became a major research and publishing project, and um, that had a very clear civil rights objective. You know, it was to explore the nobility of blacks and uh, to document it. So um, yes, it's, uh, it's extraordinary their engagement in, in, in civil rights and how quiet it was, how um, long uh, lasting it was, and how sincere. So there's, there's quite a bit in the book, uh, in the book on that, and I'd encourage you to, to look at that if that's an area you're interested in. Yes? Um, given their more progressive outlook and their actions, because it was, a, it was about action, um, uh, did that alienate them in some way? I, I'm sorry, I didn't hear did, the first did of it, that. A, did their more progressive uh, stance um, alienate them from, let's say, the more conservative elements in River Oaks or Houston? Yeah, I think it certainly, there was certainly some who were a little... Uh, uh, <laughs> horrified by what they were doing, yes. Um, but I think that, the, you know, that they were able to navigate that at a time, you know, there's a, there's a photograph in here that maybe some of you have seen of racist graffiti on the, um, on the broken obelisk. And um, there were swastikas and white power that uh, were scratched onto it um, around the time of a um, uh, celebration for Human Rights Day in December. Um, so it was very much a racist, kind of racist vandalism that took place. And they tried to get it out of the steel and, it, and they weren't able to do it. And Dominique wanted to leave it there to uh, show them, you know, as a badge of honor, you know. And, and eventually it oxidized and it, and it wore out. But um, they, uh, it, was, it was not easy. You know, there were a lot of people who were opposed to what they were doing. And even Deloitte Parker said that in, in 1969, was when they wanted to buy, when they first offered to buy Broken Obelisk and to give it to the city of Houston and have it dedicated to Martin Luther King Jr. So he had been assassinated the year before. And it was a time when, when Martin Luther King was very controversial. You know, today it's almost difficult to remember how controversial he was at the end of his life. He was very opposed to the, to the Vietnam War. He was making very strong statements about uh, inequality, wealth inequality and uh, income inequality and um, even members of the African-American community felt that he was too radical. And here are the Dominiles wanting to buy this sculpture and to give it to the city as long as it could be dedicated to him. And um, there's that famous story that I wasn't sure if it was real or not because it almost sounded too good to be true, but um, it was that they went to the city hall and he, he had the John Domineau made the case for why the sculpture should be dedicated to Martin Luther King Jr. The city, uh, uh, what do you call it, the, uh, the group of city leaders? The council. There we go, the city council um, turned him down and they wouldn't explain why. They said the city council never explains. And um, John Domineau sent a letter to Barnett Newman afterwards 
saying, um, explaining the situation and saying that they were going to be buying the sculpture themselves. And he said, but I sent a letter to them suggesting this alternate inscription, which was, forgive them for they know not what they do. <laughs> and he sent that to Barnett Newman as well. So, yeah, there were, they were strong. You know, and, and there's something, there's a quote that I love at the beginning of the book. It's the first epigraph from Dominique de Menil that says, I regret very much that the word controversial is so disparaging. To be controversial means to have original ideas that not everybody has. What's accepted is never what is the most important or the most interesting. To be not controversial is to remain at the lowest common denominator. So that's strong, you know. And yeah, not everyone understood that. But there's another statement that for me is super important to the Dominial mission, and it's something that John Dominial said about Jerry McKeggie, this curator and museum director who was so important to them. Um, he wrote a letter talking about the exhibitions that she was doing at St. Thomas, and he said of her work that it was scholarly but seductive. You know? and, and that's a super important idea. You know, it's based on scholarship, but it's also charming. You know, it's designed to charm the viewer. And I think that was essential to everything the Dominios did. So yes, they were controversial. Yes, they took positions that were not always popular. But there, was, there were tremendous reserves of charm with both of them. And I think that's something that, that made their experience, that was helpful in their experience here in Houston. Other questions? Oh, here we go. The microphone. I can hear you, but I think others can't. With Mark Rothko, the nature the letters, exchanges, things we might not know. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. The um, I want to get to that. Yes, um, she asked if I could speak to the nature of the relationship with Mark Rothko. So, you know, many of you know that the, the way this first came about is after the death of Jeremy McKeggie, they wanted a, a memorial to her. And there was always supposed to be a chapel at the end of the Great Axis at the University of St. Thomas. And um, so it began with this idea of talking with Mark Rothko to see if he wanted to do this chapel and to make it as a monument to Jerry McKeggie. And um, so they spoke with him, and um, Mark Rothko had always wanted uh, a sort of total environment for his works. You know, the, the reason he had done these murals for the, for the Four Seasons in New York, and he felt that it, such a luxurious social environment was inappropriate for the seriousness of the works, and so he withdrew them. And uh, at one point, the Dominials were interested in, in acquiring those. But um, they, suggested, they suggested acquiring a group of the Seagram mural paintings for a future chapel in Houston. In the end, Rothko demurred, uh, wrote uh, art historian Sheldon Nodelman. It would be impractical to adapt these paintings to a setting and purpose for which they had not been conceived. He proposed instead to create a series of paintings expressly for this purpose. So uh, very that was in, in the late 50s. So there was already this idea that Rothko had kind of proposed about maybe we could do a chapel, you know? And so when Jerry McKeggie died in 1964, April 1964, um, 
Dominique went again to, the, to visit Rothko and she asked if he would consider making paintings for a Catholic chapel that they would have over there. And Dominique said that he said yes immediately and it was very simple, that he would devote all his time to the chapel, that figures were never advanced. So they rented um, a remarkable carriage house on, Adelaide will tell me, 69th Street, there we go. Um, and uh, the Dominios rented this space uh, for him and allowed him the time to work on these, you know, completely uninterrupted. And um, that process is um, <clears throat> extraordinary. But the fact that they gave him this studio, they gave him the means to, to devote himself full time to these for several years. Um, speaks a lot to the confidence that they had in this artist. And um, they supported him fully in his uh, questions, his conflict, I guess, with the, with the architect. Because at one point, Philip Johnson wanted to do a structure that had sort of a cone that would go up very high, and Dominique felt that it looked like a crematorium. <laughs> and. Um, so in April 1967, I alluded this to uh, earlier, but I just, I think it's very uh, interesting. And on April 18th, 1967, Rothko called Dominique to say that it was time. He's ready to show his work. She walked the several blocks from the house on 73rd Street to Rothko's 69th Street studio. As Dominique described her first encounter with the canvases, his studio was empty except for one painting, one of the four large dark purplish monochromes. He had placed a chair for me about 20 feet in front of it and another chair for himself between the painting and me. He did not utter a word. He just looked at me. I felt instantly that not one muscle of my face should betray a surprise. I had expected bright colors, so I just looked. Oh, miracle. Peace invaded me. I felt held up, embraced, and free. Nothing was stopping my gaze. There was a beyond. So, you know, I think that the, the relationship with Rothko is uh, an extraordinary example of their complete commitment to an artist and their desire to have an artist, to allow an artist to be completely free to follow their vision. So I hope that tells you a little. There's a whole chapter. <laughs> y yes. Why Rothko? Because they felt they had this feeling from the beginning that there was a spiritual component to Rothko's works. And Dominique says from this first visit, um, oh, let me see if I have that here. From the first visit in, in the 1950s, uh, they were able to see the Four Seasons paintings at his studio down on the Bowery. And Dominique wrote, John and I had the privilege to see the paintings hung as they were to be displayed in the restaurant. They made for an extraordinary mystical environment, a mix of intimacy and transcendence that can be found in certain churches, certain mosques. So right away they felt the spiritual uh, element of Rothko's work. Last question. Yes. Wait just one second, we have to wait for the microphone. Sorry. Uh, you spent a significant amount of your adult life working on this book. 
what will you do next? And what, what, what's your responsibility now with this book other than just to sell it? I mean, well, that's a good question. There's been so much work on the editing of this book the last six months or nine months that it's, uh, it's been a little difficult to decide what the next project is. Something manageable, um, not two lives, um, only one. And um, there's one subject that uh, uh, is someone who's an artist who died at 35. And there's something that's kind of appealing of that. <laughs> because this book, John DeMille was born in January. John DeMille was born in January 1904, January 4th, 1904. Dominique died December 31st, 1997. So it's the 20th century, essentially. Um, and uh, there's something very attractive about 35 years. <laughs> so thank you very much. Thank you. The wonderful things about the Manila Collection events, the Rothko Chapel events, we love receptions. And why do we love them? Because it's a way to keep the conversation going. So William's gonna be over at the Byzantine Fresco Chapel. It's just to the southeast of here. And uh, we'll be signing books. Uh, we'll be gathered for more conversations. So again, thank you all for coming and we look forward to seeing you soon. Bye-bye.